0: Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands, the
1: habitat, the hunting, and of course,
2: your favorite bird dogs. Renowned conservationist, author, and a thinker well ahead of his time, Aldo Leopold, wrote the following in a Sand County Almanac. The land ep- ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soils, waters, plants, and animals, or collectively, the land. In short, a land ethic changes the role of humans from conqueror of the land community to plain member and citizen of it. It implies respect for fellow members and also respect for the community. In today's episode of On the Wing podcast, we're going to do our best to run hard at the land ethic and that web of life as a core philosophical approach to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat conservation mission. Today, we're going to focus on how our organization's efforts to create habitat for upland birds also improves water quality, from streams and rivers to lakes to the great lakes all the way to the ocean. Water covers 71% of the Earth's surface. It is the foundation of life. And pheasants forever, and Quail Forever's habitat mission is a critical component to protecting our planet's water quality. Don't believe me? It's time to turn up the volume and listen to the experts. We've got four biologists from our organization on the podcast today to connect the dots to our from our passion for upland birds as bird hunters to our wildlife habitat mission to manage the land for habitat all the way to improving water quality. This is an episode, this is an incredibly important episode in my mind. It's an episode that validates the connection between our role as hunters and our connection to conservationists that we are truly helping save the planet. The Orange Army of Bird Hunters and members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever are helping save the planet through our mission. So without further ado, this is the water episode. For lack of a better term at the moment, we'll see what comes up over the course of the podcast. Walleyes and roosters could be a working title. We got four biologists with us um, from east of the Mississippi River. Uh, because our water quality uh, component really bubbles to the surface of our mission when we talk or of our habitat mission when we talk of our eastern states We've got Kent Adams, biologist and director of conservation delivery in the northeastern United States Cody Grasser, biologist in Ohio, um, state coordinator for our organization. And returning to the podcast, a troll. That's right. Ben Beeman from my home state of Michigan, the state coordinator, returns, who was on uh, very recently on the podcast. And Jim Inglis, who's the frequent flyer on this episode, our government affairs director, all to talk about how our habitat mission connects to water quality. So, Let's go around the horn, start off, let you guys talk after I've uh, given a four-minute introduction. We'll start with with Kent Adams because I'm going to give Kent credit for conceptualizing um, this episode's concept. Uh, Kent, welcome to the podcast for the first time. And since it is your first time, um, go ahead and uh, tell our listeners um, where you're from and, and where you went to school and what you do for the organization.
3: Sure. Thanks, Bob. Uh, excited to be here for my first time. Hopefully, uh, I do a good enough job. It won't be my last, but, uh, I'll let you decide that. Um, I reside in, uh, Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania. That's where I was born and raised, uh, followed my career around, uh, the country a little bit, lived in the Midwest for, uh, uh, quite a while, uh, got married in the Midwest, had my first child there. So I've, I've, uh, kind of seen the whole territory that we, uh, that we cover here at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I've been with uh, Pheasants Forever for about nine years uh, in various roles, but all of them basically uh, delivering conservation, delivering our programs on the ground, uh, putting the habitat to work um, and putting the dollars to work that our organization raises. So that's been my primary role. I have a uh, bachelor of science degree in biology from a little school here in central Pennsylvania called Lycoming College. Uh, and you're a baseball guy. Uh, they're located in Williamsport, the home of the Little League World Series. So uh, and then uh, went and got my master's in wildlife science at the University of Tennessee. Go Vols. Hmm.
2: <laughs> Where Pete Manning played, right?
3: That's right. <laughs> and, and and the last time we had a good team pretty much. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I, I teased in the introduction that this is, um, a, a seed for this concept, um, came from you. So maybe you know, I talked for four minutes about what I view this particular episode, the connection between bird honors and our land management, um, mission at the organization to how it improves water quality. As as our eastern, northeastern director, um, put into words what we're trying to get across as the goal in your mind for this particular podcast. Um, I guess I would sum it up in
3: a, a pretty succinct statement of good wildlife habitat is synonymous with environmental benefits with ecosystem services and we as uh, bird hunters and and wildlife enthusiasts um, one can get a lot of mileage out of and a lot of habitat and conservation work done for the species we care about through the funding and the just overall importance and attention given to uh bigger picture things that that you know, the entire public need to be concerned about Mm. like clean water, clean air, healthy soil. Um, those, like I said, ecosystem services that, you know, maybe is really important to uh, a bigger part of the population than, than, uh, this, the orange army, as you called it. Um, Mm. so I I think that's the underlying theme is, you know, one, we need to be aware of that and use those, services and use that funding and those opportunities to make a difference for the things we care about or prioritize but also uh i want people to be aware that that's something that conservationists that hunters that that anglers are doing for the entire world really um yeah uh, it's important to know that and and we haven't always done a great job as uh conservationists of communicating that well to the rest of the world and it's important i think that that people understand that to maintain our relevance.
2: Yeah, that's really well said. And So we have a lofty goals for this podcast, you know, it, we know through downloads that uh our listeners want to hear us talking about dogs and bird hunting. And we'll weave in some stories about dogs and bird hunting, but i also think Podcasts like this in the unique position that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever occupy in this space, it's critically important that we tackle the big issues. And there's no bigger issue for our planet than water quality. And again, we're going to connect the dots between a long tail or a covey of quail and habitat management and uh, having clean water. For a sustainable future. Um, Yeah, go ahead, Ken.
3: Well, I just to follow up on that point, you know, there's not one person uh, on my screen that I'm looking at here as we do this virtually that didn't get into this field, improving water quality, uh, because they were passionate about um, bird dogs and hunting. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, we all love that that's that's how we got our start most likely and we can all tell that story and and we're not going to do that now we don't have time but um i i didn't set out to clean up the Chesapeake Bay in my career i set out to make more birds you know mm. but it just so happens that i'm doing both hopefully
2: yeah right on um and so we're going to walk across the map of the US focused on the very northeastern part uh, if you think about the great lakes we're gonna move through pennsylvania ohio michigan and talk to um, some of the representatives of our organization that work in those states and we're going to move to ohio um in in cody grasser our state coordinator to at least first at this point just introduce yourself what uh uh, what your background is cody and and, uh, what you do for the organization
4: uh, yeah, will do. Um, so Cody Grasser, like you said, I'm I'm from uh, Missouri originally. Grew up in Missouri uh, and lived there my whole childhood, and moved to Ohio. Uh, came here for school and went to Denison University, a uh, not a traditional wildlife program there, um, and uh, ended up uh, kind of pursuing and and getting a better idea of what I wanted to do while there and then just pursuing this career through a lot of uh, seasonal work and various opportunities that could get me into wildlife research and management. Um, I'm the state coordinator for Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever now and, and manage a pretty big team here in the state. We have farm biologists, we have precision ag and conservation specialists, we have a grasslands and grazing coordinator, we have um, some of our Sort our national staff live in Ohio. We have regional rep that lives in Ohio. We got a lot of people. We got a lot of partnerships and a lot of different initiatives. So all fun stuff that I, I really enjoy working on. I've only been doing that for about a year as state coordinator and still kind of figuring that all out, what being a state coordinator means. I was. I've been with the organization for about eight years and I was a farm bill biologist for most of that and a senior farm bill biologist for, for a bit. And then, um, got this promotion about a year ago. So, um, that's how I've ended up here.
2: And it's interesting for listeners. Um, most listeners would assume naturally that our membership would reflect where birds are, right? Like, Oh, Pheasants Forever must have tens of thousands of members that live in South Dakota. It's like, well, the reality is um, we have members where people live. Um, And honestly, South Dakota, North Dakota, I think their overall state populations are about 750,000 people each. And uh, Ohio and our next state we'll, we'll touch on here, Michigan, are actually have far greater numbers of members currently in the organization than the D- the C- Dakotas do. You know, Michigan and Ohio have long been, I want to say fifth and sixth or sixth and seventh somewhere in there, depending on if the Buckeyes or the Wolverines are, uh, are the hot team. Um, but they trade off places in terms of member numbers and, and actually have, because of the population centers that, that live in those states and the affinity that those population centers have for our mission. So, you know, it, it, it may surprise folks to learn, but there are more members of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever in states like Ohio and Michigan than, than maybe you would initially think about. So that's why partially, you know, we have a ton of members, a ton of chapters, and a lot of employees. Um, doing tremendous work in states like Ohio. And then, and then uh, looking at my screen, my, my Michigan blood brother who is wearing his, his, uh, youper created Stormy Cromer because he just really wants to be a youper. Um, Ben Beeman, uh, back on the podcast, state coordinator. Folks, folks did get to know you here recently, but, uh, folks that didn't listen to that Michigan-centric podcast, uh, uh, introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Uh,
1: so Ben Beeman, I'm the state coordinator for Pheasants Forever in Michigan. I uh, have a similar role uh, to what Cody does in Ohio. We are, we're a smaller team here in Michigan of staff. where There are currently four of us, but we're growing. We're going to be adding a new one soon. Um, so very excited about that. Uh, we do a lot of public land habitat restoration here through the adopt a game area program, which we discussed on the last podcast, but I'm uh, originally from Southeast Michigan, not terribly far from where I currently live. Um, only about 15, 20 minutes from Ohio. In fact, I, I went down to the Ohio state meeting uh, at Cody's invitation several months back and I, uh, I think I was actually closer to the meeting location than any of the Ohio staff that's that's how close I am um but uh yeah I've I've been here most of my life with a uh, brief stopover in Wyoming for college where I got my bachelor's and my master's and uh if anybody listened to the the last podcast they heard all about my extracurriculars that I should have been (laughs) doing while I was studying there um but uh, glad to be back in Michigan glad to be working for the habitat organization I've been here for four years going on five mm-hmm. now um, so
2: yeah so I I caught some grief from some family members based on our podcast together because I didn't I didn't share the fact that I was actually born in Monroe Michigan and I was, right. uh, mm-hmm. which is right in your neck of the woods Um I Don't really remember much of that, so I always identify as a youper because I moved up when I was a very little kid. But um... once
1: a troll, always a troll.
2: <laughs> well played, Ben. Well played. <laughs> yeah, we'll move, uh, we'll move and round out our podcast back. Uh, also a, um, a returning podcast guest, he's he's our go to. For Washington, D.C., our government affairs director, Jim Inglis. Welcome back, Jim. It's been, uh, well, it's only been a couple months because you were on with uh, the Congressional Sportsman Foundation podcast. I think that was the most recent one we've done together.
0: Yeah, that was. so. Well, thanks for having me back and, and to talk about something that I've been involved with here. So, um, So I've been with the organization for 20 years, the last 10 years of that are going on 10 years now has been on the governmental affairs side but i did start out as the regional rep and lived here uh, in northwest ohio in the lake erie watershed so right really from the start as the regional biologist and and working with our partners and our chapters then i got engaged on these water quality um you know opportunities to help Mm -hmm. with you know producing some pheasants and good habitat as well as um, improving the water quality side of things so yeah thanks again
2: so you're an old pro because you already teased where I want to go next. I'll, I'll, I'm will i going to insert a shout out to um, our friends at South Dakota Department of Tourism and in, in South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Make f- next fall your best season yet with South Dakota's Hunt the Greatest Giveaway. Learn more about a ch- your chance to win free Shields gear and putting together your epic pheasant hunt in South Dakota at huntthegreatest.com. All right, Jim, you, you know, I gave credit to Kent for sort of conceptualizing this concept, but at the sort of the beginning beyond even this concept, I think back to, um When we started working together, when I started working at the organization originally, and we were looking for ideas for, um, at the time, it was Pheasants Forever Television, Ron Cher Productions. And I polled all of our biologists. I'm like, we're looking for stories to tell. And you came up with what, in my view, is the most memorable, most important story in the history of our partnership with Ron Cher Productions and the iterations of Pheasants Forever Television and The Flush. And that concept was roosters and walleye. So explain, I want you to dig a little deep on this, the background, because there's a lot of folks that were involved leading up to you pitching me that idea. And tell tell that connection between walleyes and, and roosters in Ohio.
0: The early parts of the, the partnerships that we had with the chapters were that it was really those volunteers and those chapter leaders that knew that if um we were going to have get habitat on the ground and it was in form of buffers and conservation reserve program and restoring wetlands and those kind of things then um, there was definitely a connection to to lake erie and the watershed and so that was how we initially pitched that show idea was to say well let's and it came from one of the chapter leaders uh, john hagman at the time who was a fisheries researcher with Ohio State University up on Lake Erie at the research station up there? And so, um, you know, we pitched the show. Um, they came out and, and did an episode on that. And really, it was about that connection that if we, we can have both, as uh, Kent talked about, you know, we didn't have the initial intention of doing water quality, although some of our programs that came about through the Farm Bill and through some state initiatives. Um, really helped get that grassland cover and, and produce birds on the landscape.
2: Yeah, and and that's something that has really took off instantly, right? I mean, that, that concept of linking the two, that really started a fire, didn't it?
0: It did. Um, and even back in 2000, so going back to the 96 Farm Bill is when there was a focus on uh, water quality and wetland restorations. And when the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program became a concept that partners and states could get engaged in to bring more resources. So basically the Farm Bill CRP program was the base. And then there was other funding that came in from state um, agencies and and other partners to help with the enhancement Mm -hmm. and really be targeted in those efforts that really started in water quality, whether we're talking Lake Erie or the Great Lakes or even the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So there are that program now is, is widespread and it's very successful here in Ohio because of those enhancements and, and, um, a little bit more funding in there to, to get those practices installed.
2: So I'm going to grab the proverbial podcasting baton and hand it to Kent. And what I'm, I I know that if, if folks are hardcore bird hunters, they're familiar with CRP. They've hunted CRP in the Dakotas, in Montana, you know, it really most of the places where you can have pheasants, CRP is going to be the the place where you point to is creating an awful lot of, particularly the private lands habitat. But Jim mentioned CREP, Conservation Reserve Enhancement, the enhancement piece of the program. And I, I'm throwing the baton to Kent because that CREP, is different than crp and it is the bread and butter program for pheasants forever and quail forever chapters east of the mississippi river which is the heart of kent's kent's region so explain and because i'm assuming you've explained this a hundred times ken explain the difference between crep and crp and, and, and break it down for the listeners
3: sure um first of all i think i forgot to mention what my region is so i i said i live in pennsylvania but it it's basically uh goes west to indiana catches michigan and uh and then i've got the the new england area as well so i wanted to make sure i inserted that because you just referenced my region but um so you know crep is a specific type of crp basically um and the enhancement is uh flexibility in my opinion it gives you options to adapt the program and and uh, customize it um for the needs of a particular state and actually a particular watershed it's watershed based um for instance we actually have three creps in Pennsylvania we have the Ohio River crep the Chesapeake Bay crep and the Delaware River crep and uh, Cody can tell you about the multiple ones they have in Ohio as well but um, it, it allows Eastern state, the reason it's a, you know, we have CREP in South Dakota and Minnesota too, but the reason Mm -hmm. it's so important to Eastern states and kind of the preferred program here is, uh, CR, general CRP is often not, um, as feasible to implement here or easy to use to address, um, particular needs of landowners or the vegetation types that we need to work with in the East. And so CREP gives us a little more of that flexibility. Um, and it it does that by bringing state uh, partnership into the federal program so that, um, you know, there's skin in the game from the local state uh, conservation partners as well. Um, and it gives you a uh, continuous sign up. So. One of the other challenges with general CRP in the East is we don't always compete well with some of those offers, which are, uh, you know, general is a nationally nationally ranked program. You get a sign up announced, um, landowners from all over the country can offer their acres and then they're ranked and, and decided, you know, uh, what goes into the program based on how they, how those acres meet the priorities. Um, a lot of times the eastern states don't rank as well. And so this gives us an opportunity to compete and get our acres in there under a continuous sign-up approach. Um, the, each CREP has its own acreage cap or maximum. It's really a cost cap more than an acreage cap. but um, it, uh, so, so it is limited. It's not, it's not limitless, but mm-hmm. you can sign up for it at any time. And it's uh, factored in, Jim can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's factored into the national CRP cap, um, wherever those CREPs uh, already exist. So, um, But yeah, I guess the the, the take-home point for me is um, the flexibility to adapt it to what's needed that maybe the general sign-up doesn't necessarily give us. And by bringing the state dollars into it, um, it does create... Generally, higher rates. And that's also, you know, an extra carrot we have to um, compensate landowners for those acres.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a listener, you probably wonder well, I wonder why Eastern states don't compete as well as some of the Western states. Because, you know, as a general public, you'd think, well, there's not as much habitat in those Eastern states. So you'd think that they'd score higher but in I'll throw it to Jim here cuz he's probably the most knowledgeable on the environmental benefits index and maybe can boil it down into something that the average person is going to be able to understand but that it, why doesn't or why is an eastern state at as a disadvantage when it comes to competing for general crp jim
0: well some of it has to do with um some of the erosion, you know, even though these areas that we're talking about have high water quality areas, sometimes Mm -hmm. the, like Northwest Ohio, for example, is fairly flat. So you don't hit some of those erosion indexes as much. Um, The other thing is, is that um, the general CRP rental rates seem to be lower. You know, so when a landowner is looking at the ability to enroll and, and much of this land that we're talking about in Ohio and some of these other regions are highly productive. You know, it's not like, it's, it's highly erosive, mm-hmm. you know, to say maybe from a little bit from a water, but it's not gonna, you know, it's not light soil that's gonna blow like some of the other states or um, those types of things. So it, it has been and if you look historically in the eastern states, then the general sign up has decreased significantly, but the continuous has picked back up. So that's where prep was the first option to really get people to adapt to that. And you could also enroll larger fields um, in CREP, or you put in the most critical area, say 120 feet or whatever, and then you might put the other field in another program or or enroll it. So we were able to still get pretty good blocks of of habitat in there. Um, So that's the main reason. And then when things like the State Acres for Wildlife came along, that was another tool underneath that continuous um, pot that um, Kent was mentioning. So those became uh, more flexible tools to use and that land farmers and the landowners adopted
2: so try this analogy out i i always think about general crp is sort of a shotgun approach it's not like it's not a giant spread but it's spread targeting a general area that we want to create benefits CREP to me is a rifle approach very specific goal uh with water quality at the top and that's where you know, whether it's the Lake Erie um, or the, you know, Susquehanna, you know, there, there's a very specific watershed and you, you know, whether you're using Google Earth or GIS, right, you can identify the land and the the watershed areas that are going to improve water quality in, in the rivers, lakes, and streams through habitat improvement. Is that, rifle, shotgun analogy, accurate way to think about things, Jim?
0: Yes. And it's, it's also the other thing about CREP too, is it's, it is more expensive because usually the, the rental rates are higher and mm-hmm. the, some of the cost share is higher too. Uh, like with a wetland restoration, there's going to be more expense to do that. So there are acreage caps in each state. So as I mentioned, I think earlier, there's 26 states now that have a crap 34 projects and about um, I just looked it up this morning, about 860,000 acres. Hmm. So when we look nationwide, we've got 22 and a half million acres right now of CRP. You know, 860,000 of it is in CREP. Hmm. Um, but and actually just this week, then USDA um, Farm Service Agency did announce there could be some more opportunities to, you know, continue those CREPs or possibly expand them with new partners as well. So um, it continues to be a, um, you know, a great tool.
2: And as Kent mentioned, there's crap in, um, all over the United States. Um, you know, some of the, uh, most, I don't know, I guess most well-known, at least in my mind based living here in the, uh, Minnesota, I think instantly when I think crap, I think of James River crap in South Dakota. Um, to me that that's one of the pinnacle versions of the program, and partly it's, I'm a public lands hunter, and the James River CREP in South Dakota has a layered component of having public access on top of targeting water quality benefits in the James River watershed. And while uh, public access isn't always layered into state-driven CREPs, um, it is another tool that some states do layer their walk-in programs on top of, like we've talked in the past, they layer it on top of CRP and some states layer it on top of CREP too. And James River is just an automatic for it too. So um, I'll move us back East, but I thought it was worth uh, mentioning uh, James River CREP because so many of our listeners will have traveled to South Dakota and can kind of put in their mind's eye how the program that we're talking about in um, in a functional place that they probably have have bird on it. Speaking of bird hunting, um, a shout out to our uh, national sponsor on X maps on the on X hunt app is the number one GPS hunting map for bird hunters. And with the most trusted and accurate map data, you'll be able to find more birds across the country including that James River CREP uh, access shows up on Onyx. So, so make sure you download an app, the, the Onyx map app, risk-free. There's a seven-day trial. If you use the code pheasants or quail, you get 70, seven days for free, and you get 20% off uh, if you buy the package at onyxhunt.com. All right, so so fellows, let's transition a little into some state by state highlights of things that the organization is working on, and um, uh, across the East Coast, uh, northeastern region, um, where we could talk specifically about CREP, land acquisitions, um, and different programs that intersect between our mission to create habitat for pheasants and quail, that is also. Um, dumping in cleaner water out the back end. So let's start with Cody in Ohio, and I I, I know we're we're gonna go right back to Crep to start. Um, tell us about what's going in um, going on in Ohio that's creating habitat for the birds and cleaner water out the um, as a result of of our mission as well.
4: We'll do so. Uh, yeah, I was gonna start with Crep, and makes sense to do so after. Ken and Jim talked about it. Uh, we have two CREP programs in Ohio, uh, both targeting specific watersheds. So we have, so we have the Lake Erie CREP program and Souda River. Lake Erie's, uh, actually concentrated to the Western Lake Erie basin watershed, primarily Northwest Ohio and the Souda River uh, CREP program is almost the entire Souda River watershed in central Ohio. It actually connects to the Lake Erie CREP program. Um, I had a, I thought I was going into, but Jim's number, like really caught, caught my ears. He said, 860,000 acres, I think he said was enrolled in CREP nationwide. Well, I had done some, some homework to get ready for this too. And over a hundred thousand of those acres are in Ohio alone. Mm. So, uh, I'm kind of surprised at that, that percentage that we have just in Ohio. Uh, so CREP is a huge tool for us when it comes to delivering habitat. It is, um, you know, one thing Jim mentioned about incentives, it's higher incentives, it's higher cost share rates. So it's just way more marketable for our team to go to landowners and be able to tell them they're going to get more money and more money in their annual rental payment and more money in their their cost share for establishment. And it's, and it's in exchange for a couple of things, you gotta agree to a little bit longer contract than the average, like general CRP contract. It's a little longer and in cases it's more restrictive. So it's restricted to those watersheds. It can be restricted within them to only specific practices and maybe, um, locations, you know, proximity to the water bodies within those watersheds, proximity to a floodplain or, um uh, the slope and soil types can impact eligibility. But if somebody has eligibility, they can enroll and get, um, get a high payment and our CREPs have pretty good incentives. And then they also have higher incentives for landowners to opt for native vegetation, which is another cool, cool aspect of it. So if somebody wants to plant native warm season grass, they're going to get a higher payment than their neighbor who's planting introduced grass species, which is a big plus, plus for wildlife here. And when we talk about CREP in Ohio, we always talk about the the overlay of the, the wild pheasant population with the CREP program. So if you take a map of our existing wild pheasant population and, and lay it over that map of where CREP counties, where CREP eligibility is, it's, it's it's almost you know exact yeah. it's an exact match um sciota crep in particular is like the heartland of of pheasants in ohio and then lake erie crep in northwest ohio has a good pocket of, of, of pheasants as well and um i was again in preparation preparation i was reminding myself of a presentation i got from ohio division of wildlife recently where they had looked at some data and it wasn't uh, wasn't that many years ago. They they took like the top 12, um, 12 counties in the state for like acreage of enrollment in CRP, and those top twelve counties had some of the best pheasant populations in the state. And they were all CREP counties,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and they're all high enrollment CREP counties. So CREP's um, our biggest our biggest sign up type in Ohio as far as acres go for CRP we get more crap acres than general sign up or continuous sign up so so um, we use a lot of-
2: when I think <clears throat> when I think about crap and I don't mean to interrupt you Cody I'm thinking about I so we get stuck into these acronyms and then a the general public is thinking, well they're talking watersheds and they're talking crap and it's like um I think it's pretty easy to get to this visually thinking about a buffer, right? Because mm. like water quality and buffers, I think, a pretty common understanding. But CREP, Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program, is more like buffers can be part of it, but it's a it's it's more than just a a corridor along a stream, right? So explain visually somebody that's never been to Sciota River. Right. In this watershed. I mean, this crep, I mean, it could mean a 40 acre block, 80 acre block of habitat that a, a landowner could have pheasant Valhalla in Ohio,
4: right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a lot of buffer practices, filter strips, like grass filter strips along a river or creek or something. But in some cases, those can be up to 300 feet wide, and you can put another practice adjacent to them if it's in a floodplain, so that you can enroll the entire floodplain into the program. Um, we have other practices like wetland restoration, like Jim mentioned, where we'll do a wetland restoration, and we not we may not be creating a you know a 40-acre pool of water, but we can do an adjacent grassland buffer and end up with 40 acres of a habitat for a small wetland restoration. And yeah, we absolutely have those fields that are 50 to hundred acres or more of conti- continuous habitat. Mm. Um, the other thing I think about a lot when you brought up the word buffers is it's connectivity. Mm. So we're talking about a bunch of linear practices that um, even if narrow, they might be, uh, using as travel corridors, connecting other bigger pieces, which is is really critical in Ohio. You know, I didn't I didn't mention it. I could have kind of described the nature of Ohio to the listener, who's probably picturing like the Great Plains and Western states. Like we're intensive ag country, but in that that ag rotation, there's no small grains anymore. Uh, we don't have a lot of grazing and and pasture and other grassland habitat anywhere. It's it's you know, heavily relied on CRP to provide upland and, and grassland habitat. So uh, we also don't have shelter belts. Lots of fence rows have been ripped out. So, so the can- connectivity and like kind of linear habitat features that crep um, incentivizes are a really good thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you took it exactly where I was where I was thinking too, because it it does illustrate the mosaic approach. That our organization looks at philosophically as a landscape, you know, it's not one particular program. And this is true of Ohio, and it's true of Montana, right? It, you know, we need the linear connectivity of buffers and riparian areas. We need the bigger blocks of CRP. We need the smaller chunks where we can fit them in of pollinator habitat. We need the hubs of wildlife management areas and waterfall production areas, and When you start looking at a landscape level, whether it's Ohio, Michigan, or Montana, and you start piecing all these things together at scale, then you can start having an impact, whether that's pheasants, quail, or water quality. And that's where I do think, you know, about, you know, each program takes like a little bit different hierarchy in the, you know, the top 10, right? Like CREP in Ohio... It's probably number one, where in, in, you know, in Minnesota, it's maybe three, four, right? But, but that's the nature of, in the beauty of the organization like ours is we can sort of move them up and down the chain to pace base, based upon opportunities. And in Ohio, right, crap is number one. And then you get to be creative with, you know, H2Ohio and different state-driven initiatives that help you. Build the mosaic to take advantage of opportunities to improve habitat while benefiting water quality. So I won't steal your thunder. Tell us about H two Ohio, one of the coolest acronyms out there. Because right? as a as a self proclaimed acronym snob, that's one that uh, that's one that works for me.
4: I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you can kind of understand what it is just by hearing the acronym. Or your mind goes in the right direction at least. Um, H2Ohio is a water quality initiative program that or water quality initiative that came out I think um, two or three years ago with uh, Governor Mike DeWine's administration and they um, allocated $172 million to dedicate to water quality, Mm -hmm. water quality improvement and then they you know, like kind of subdivided that into different departments within the state. Uh, you know, Department of Ag got some, EPA got some, Ohio uh, Department of Natural Resources got a lot of that money. And that's mainly has been our, our interest and focus. Ohio Department of Natural Resources got a lot of the money. And they kind of from square one wanted to spend it on wetland restoration. And that was their, their priority. And they've done a ton of wetland restoration work. And they kind of subsequently gave a smaller portion to the Ohio division of wildlife, which is a division of theirs, a strong partner of ours that we work closely with and division of wildlife was kind of tasked with using that money again for wetland restoration, but, um, targeting private lands and not that some of the other money wasn't, but they were targeting private lands and the division of wildlife, um, to their credit, when they first got the news, uh, kind of pulled a group of people together from a bunch of different partnering agencies, different conservation entities throughout the state, uh, both state and federal, you know, government and, and NGO groups to to come together and say, okay, we think we're going to get all this money. How How would we spend it? Like, if we have, like, you know, we can go do whatever we want and create this, like, you know, golden program or whatever um and we had conception you know there was all kinds of different concepts of from creating a brand new program to running in an entirely different direction and um or just incentivizing existing programs what types of practices what type of habitat do we want to accomplish because we knew that uh wetlands are going to you know do a lot for water quality they want to capture and filter sediment and pollutants in the surface water and reduce them and put more water, you know, help it enter the groundwater and, uh, and all that for water quality, but it's going to do great things for habitat too. So we were able to be involved with that, that kind of initial group um, and some of the conceptualizing of, of the program that came out of H2Ohio funding. And and it's the water quality incentive program Hmm. that the Ohio Division of Wildlife uh, developed to incentivize CREP. So we've been talking about CREP a bunch. So Lake Erie CREP specifically is where they started with this. And they um, limited it to wetland restoration practices and riparian forest buffer practices. And those are practices that, A, we know we are going to have great benefit to water quality, which is what the funding has to, has to be spent on. And we also know it has enduring benefits and is likely to stick around for a while. So um, they implemented this program and you have to be eligible for CREP. It's a landowner who goes and signs up for CREP and wants to do a wetland restoration. They can consider the water quality incentive program and then they'll get an additional $2,000 an acre. Hmm. And it's just a one-time payment. But if you take that, you know, take that two thousand dollars an acre across the span of a 15-year contract that's that's over a hundred bucks an acre additional that they're going to get um, a year basically and and then they don't have to do anything else additive to what they would already be doing for a crep contract so it's just an incentive payment hmm. we we knew that crep worked division of wildlife helps implement crep and um, they're partners on on the CREP programs we have already. So um, they, you know, chose to just incentivize that existing program and to the tune of about like 25, 2,500 new acres were enrolled mm. in the first sign up. And that's all new habitat. So that was one of their, kind of one of their, um, you know, requirements is it's new acres. You can't have a, an existing wetland contract, just re-enroll and take, take that incentive. It has to be creation of a new wetland. Um, so it's worked out great and it's in Northwest Ohio where, um, habitat comes in a premium Mm -hmm. and cash rent of farming is, is hard to compete with. And, um, even those sort of marginal areas that are hard to farm, they, you know, have good soil and can produce a bumper crop when they do have a good, a good year and you know, the average CRP rental rates sometimes are hard to compete with that. So that, that incentive just makes the, the program really marketable.
2: Yeah, you know, we talk about water quality, we talk about upland birds. My assumption is a uh, big Ohio whitetail bucks like that habitat too.
4: They do. They do. <laughs> um, waterfowl too. Uh, mm-hmm. The ODNR has done a bunch of restoration along Lake Erie. And the coastal marshes, they've done a ton of uh, stuff up there with h 2 Ohio funding. Um, independent of, of crap. they've done some stuff on you know public land as well. And um, I mean, those are where the huge wetland restorations are being done. And um, that's a waterfowl destination hmm. for sure.
2: Well, <clears throat> we'll we're going to move around the country, but I want to make sure we talk about the mallet acquisition. You, you mentioned public lands. And some pretty exciting news here very recently for the state of Ohio. Tell us about a brand new piece of public opportunity out there.
4: Yeah, we just closed on the, the mallet mallet property acquisition, our latest build a wildlife area project in Ohio and 415 acres of, of land in central Ohio. That's our biggest to date in Ohio. We haven't you know, done a ton of, Uh, build wildlife area projects historically here but we hope to to continue doing more and it's uh, the the water quality piece ties in very well to it so in ohio we have very high uh land values which is probably pretty consistent with all all listener states at this point but you know if we're paying several thousand dollars an acre anywhere from five to ten thousand dollars an acre sometimes twenty thousand dollars an acre on Um, prime farmland that's hard money to raise with chapters and so we we had this opportunity that was brought to us from the division of wildlife and they wanted us to ask us we'd partner with and be interested in a project like um, this acquisition we knew that one of the the most obvious funding sources available was clean ohio it's a grant program with the ohio public works commission and so we knew that if we went to clean Ohio for money, we'd have to deliver on a bunch of their mission objectives too. And we'd have to like fulfill their wishes. They're not going to give us a bunch of money otherwise. And um, we knew we'd be going, you know, needing close to 2 million total. And uh, so we ended up applying for that grant and got awarded it, got a bunch of money from them, got a big contribution from the Ohio division of wildlife. But the the key that I would emphasize for this conversation is that o- clean Ohio uh priori- prioritizes applications that have huge water quality implications. So we have a project that is in the floodplain, so it's protecting a floodplain mm-hmm. um, and it's mitigating flooding and and so forth. So we got points for that. You get some some extra credit if you're doing a project that improves aquatic habitat. Uh, hasn't been, you know, go back to the the walleye we talked about, yeah. and it's. Um, improving aquatic habitat for, you know, uh, fishing, but it's also improving water quality for paddling and other water sports, water re- related recreation. The project happens to be in the floodplain of a, of a water source that provides Columbus, Columbus, Ohio with drinking water. So that had big implications too. So, um, it's a great project for a lot of other reasons. It's, it's adjacent to a huge, uh, public, landholding with Division of Wildlife. And this addition of 400 acres makes for well over 6,000 acres of connected habitat in the area. Um, That's being used by wild pheasants and a bunch of other um, threatened and endangered species. Um, Not other, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a bunch of critical grassland species are, are utilizing the area. So we obviously had, you know, a lot of mission delivery associated with it. I thought and it was great for habitat, but with the water quality implications, it was a slam dunk for the clean Ohio application.
2: Well, I'm, I love hearing about my acquisitions and kudos Cody to leading that charge and on that one. And I think it's important to just highlight, you know, we post on Facebook and social media about different projects and land creations and, um, and we get a lot of, lot of folks poking us like well it it always is just minnesota and it's you know you guys are just creating access in nebraska or or south dakota and it's like you know there is a there's funding sources and different variables that create opportunities the further west you go but this wasn't the first land acquisition in the state of ohio there's been other land acquisitions and this one is a really signature piece because the again the intersection of public access wildlife habitat water quality in a highly populated state and it just it comes down to a scale of dollars and participation so you know we know that there's a ton of people living in ohio that really want to chase upland birds we just need more of you in our ranks and we could. Raise more money and do more projects like this when it's available. But just to underscore, you know, I know we're talking about water quality, but public access being a hot button. Here's here is a brand new public land created through the result of this organization and working in with a number of partners. But your member dollars hard at work in the state of Ohio. Um, all right, we'll move us along here and. Um, Ben, welcome back um, to the podcast. We talked a bit about um, Michigan's CREP on the Adopt a Game Area focused podcast, but let's walk through, you know, the Great Lakes State um, and some of the things that we're doing in the state of Michigan to benefit habitat and water quality.
1: Sure. Um, so crep is back in michigan and and we're very excited about that we um, our, our last period of crep here in michigan which gosh has to be close to two decades ago now um, coincided with uh you know our, our most recent local high in pheasant numbers mm-hmm. uh, and certainly the, the highest in, in my lifetime and and in recent years more and more of those, CREP contracts have been expiring and we've managed to fill a little bit of the void using uh, CRP safe which Jim alluded to earlier and uh, those plantings are all still young enough that the the wildlife benefits have not yet been realized but that's coming but uh, now with CREP being back uh, we're we're really excited to have have that it's going to be a boon for our grassland wildlife here as well Um, there are three three active uh, CREP projects here. Uh, first is the Western Lake Erie Basin, uh, right next to Ohio's Western Lake Erie CREP. And I'll, I'll be real stereotypical Michigander here and do the hand thing, but I have to talk <laughs> people through it because no one can see me. If you, if you do the, the right-handed mitten with your palm facing you, uh, the Western Lake Erie CREP is basically the the lower half of the meat of your thumb. It's about seven counties. Um, and, and the bulk of that is the River Raisin Watershed and some, some small neighboring watersheds as well. And that's core pheasant range for Michigan, uh, open agricultural land. Southeast Michigan, where I live, and Northwest Ohio, as much as this is going to make Ohio State and U of M fans squirm, they're, they're, they're basically one and the same. <laughs> I, I happen to be a fan of neither of those schools, so I can say that and not you know, not be too upset with myself. Um, but, uh, the second one is the Saginaw Bay, correct. And that's, that's more core pheasant range here in Michigan. And if you, you do the hand palm facing yourself, it's basically the midline of your thumb around the gap between your thumb and your pointer finger up to your knuckles. And that's like 22 counties. It's a big area or are portions of 22 counties, uh, more very open agricultural land, pretty flat. And then the third one is is on the west side of the state, which isn't really our traditional pheasant stronghold, although pheasants do exist there where habitat exists, and that's the Lake Makatawa CREP. And I think it's Allegan and Ottawa counties are included in that one. So a much smaller area, more targeted. Uh, but all of these things, when, when, when everything's said and done and farms are enrolled and grasslands are planted, there, there will be pheasants on these properties. Michigan is despite having you know, only locally locally high pheasant numbers where there's habitat, we, we can produce a lot of pheasants here if you give them the habitat they need. Uh, I was fortunate enough to hunt last week, uh, last Wednesday on a piece of ground owned by one of our really good volunteers out of our Washtenaw County chapter. And I believe it's a combination of general CRP and uh, CRP safe. And you know, it's 40 acres and, and they routinely take 20 roosters a year off that 40 acres. And Hmm. I conservatively estimate we saw 50 birds, Hmm. uh, just in the morning. So it's, it, it can happen. And, and these, these programs are the way that that's the only way we can get that habitat in these, you know, rich agricultural, valuable soils.
2: And particularly the early years of establishing that habitat. You know, I think, go ahead.
1: Interestingly, that one is not, that one's been there a while. That was, mm. uh, I mean, I, it's probably been 15 years or more that that okay. one's been, but he's, he's meticulous about his management, his burning. He, he does a great job making sure to not let it succeed into woody stuff. So he, he's a, a fantastic steward of the land and, and it shows in, in the results.
2: Well, yeah, that intensive management is going to make a big difference, right? I, I just think Absolutely. about when I started working um, with for Pheasants Forever in the early 2000s, it was the, you know, I, I remember seeing photos of the crep in the thumb, right? So that's the Saginaw crep, right? A thumb of Michigan. And um, I remember seeing photos coming out of Michigan and photos that you could have convinced me were the Dakotas. And that was because of really quality, fresh new habitat, and it's super exciting to think about that surge of a new, crap coming back to Michigan and opportunities to sign up and, and get habitat on the ground. That that is that's the key to the recipe. Yeah, the other thing I think about back home, and this was before my time. You know, when I was a youngster, I think it was probably fifty plus years ago. But there's stories of. The River Rouge, south of Detroit, being on fire, right? Being on fire. Or Lake Erie, the algae bloom in Lake Erie, where, you know, just everything dies because of the runoff of chemicals from these fields into Lake Erie. And in a particularly hot summer, you know, whether it's chemicals, whether it's lighting on fire, I mean, this is just, I mean... There's clearly a visual problem going on, folks, and it's not a preposterous statement. It's really not a preposterous statement to say the things that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is doing with our partners are preventing rivers from being able to get lit on fire again, you know, and cleaning up these algae blooms. Like, yes, we want to create habitat for Pheasants and Quail, but Something's damn wrong when a when a river is lighting on fire and prep can be part of the recipe of fixing that. So um, if you didn't think it was a good thing before, hopefully a, a, preventing rivers from being lit on fire is a good thing in your mind. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's let's move. Uh, we're going to bounce around can't get you back into the conversation you know we've talked about the great lakes we've talked about streams and rivers take us all the way to the ocean um you know what the water quality we're talking about um yeah very clearly everything flows together so link it back to to the biggest body of water on the planet
3: yeah so i live in the heart of the chesapeake bay watershed and uh that's definitely what drives a lot of our habitat efforts here in Pennsylvania, is the concern for the Chesapeake Bay water quality and the opportunities to, to address those concerns. Um, it links right to what you were just talking about, Bob. Um, I won't go into all the nitty gritty science of, of what is impacting you know, the crab fisheries and the oyster fisheries and, the, and you know, that way of life. Excuse me, down there on the bay. But that's really what led to a 2009 executive order uh, coming from President Obama to to instruct the relevant federal agencies to figure out what to do about this crisis in the bay and and implement a plan to fix it. And, um, you know, we already had CREP at that time. Uh, CREP's not the only thing we're doing. to to address the Chesapeake Bay it's just one tool in the toolbox but um, what what happened out of that was basically you know certain types of causes of those of the nutrient loading that's going on in the Bay that's causing these blooms and and sucking the oxygen out of the water is you know you got point source and non-point source pollution i'm pretty sure my fifth grade son is learning that right now in science class so. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh you know the non-point source was the stuff where we come in you know that that's more of the agricultural side of things um you know the point source is you know municipalities and sewage treatment plants and and those kinds of things and, and we don't get too involved there but um and, and those are those are legitimate issues as well don't get me wrong but, um, you know, agriculture um, kind of had a, a, a spotlight shined on it in a negative way there. And um, the USDA was one of the major, you know, uh, players here as far as, okay, what can we do about this? What incentives can we offer? What kind of voluntary conservation programs are out there we can use to address these issues? And, and that's, of course, our bread and butter. Um, and so that's what that's what we're doing in Pennsylvania uh, partnering with USDA partnering with Pennsylvania game commission and, and others to try and get more of these voluntary practices on the landscape. And, um, you know, it, I, I mentioned that, you know, um, sort of the spotlight got shined in a negative way. Um, that's one of the things I look at, uh, as a, as a positive outcome here as well, uh, having grown up on a Pennsylvania farm, in the chesapeake bay watershed Uh, i still own a a small little piece of land here that we farm some land on or farm some uh, crops on Uh, i would not consider myself a farmer Uh, i don't want to offend my farming friends by uh, comparing them myself to them at all but um the the point is utilizing these programs and addressing um these issues is important for agriculture. It's important for sustaining that way of life, sustaining our food production, uh, you know, globally, um, and doing it in a way that, that is done, um, environmentally friendly and sustainably. So I, you know, I don't look at it as a, um, pointing the finger as much as, you know, an opportunity to strengthen that industry and strengthen that heritage as, as much as our, our hunting and our wildlife heritage. Um, because obviously, um, water quality problems, uh, uh, are not going to go away if they're not addressed. And eventually, you know, you get into the, the realm of, you know, regulation versus, uh, voluntary conservation yeah. and, you know, nobody wants to go there. And so I I think that's an important role for us to play as an organization is, you know, you you look at where our chapters are located, where our volunteers come from. It's those rural agricultural communities, and that's as true in Pennsylvania as it is in Iowa. And Mm -hmm. um, so these are our people, and we want to help our people, and we want to, you know, uh, make these things, make um, agriculture and the environment work together and, and uh you know, be sustainable long-term. So um, I, I I got a little off on a tangent there, but um, I, I don't have a whole lot more to say about CREP that hasn't already been said. I was going to circle back to uh, a couple of points that Jim and Cody made uh, that popped into my head while they were talking. First, I'm really glad that Cody is in charge of Ohio now and I'm not anymore that, that we were able to hire a state coordinator there. Cause Man, it sounds complicated. More than more so than our, managing all that we have going on there is is a lot of work, um, and I wouldn't be doing nearly as well as he is with it. So glad glad we have him on there, and I appreciate the support of our chapters and our partners allowing us to support a state coordinator there. Um, but uh, one going back to the question you asked me at the beginning, um, we actually in Pennsylvania are actually able to pay more for more environmentally sensitive acres. So more erodably, more erodible acres. We have a tiered incentivized uh, payment system where you start with your base soil rental rate. And then, uh, as the erodibility index increases, so does the multiplier on that base soil rental rate, um, for what, uh, USDA terms, H-E-L, highly erodible land, which is a pretty cool thing. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and gives us that, you know, perfect overlap of the acres that are the most sensitive, the most environmentally, uh, risky, uh, putting the most sediment, putting the most nutrients into those water bodies. We're able to use in an alternative way, uh, and put grass on them and, uh, and make it worth the landowners while doing so. So, um, I wanted to point that out. And then, uh, you, you talked about access a little while ago and, um, you know, the sometimes how that's overlaid, uh, the walk-in mm-hmm. programs, especially out West are overlaid with CREP or, or with CRP. And, and you hear, uh, maybe on Facebook comments, or you're just talking to people, you hear sometimes people say, well, you know, CRP, uh, I don't support CRP unless it's open for public hunting. It's taxpayer dollars. It should be open for public hunting. You know, it should be a requirement. And uh, I push back on that a little bit because um, it it has to be there. The habitat has to be there first before we can have it be worthwhile hunting. And uh, you know, what a lot of states are doing, Pennsylvania has done it through uh, the voluntary public access uh, program which is another farm bill program. Uh, Ohio just began one this year, Um, some other states uh, around the country. It's not so much that it's required, but now using VEPA HIP, they go after those acres Mm -hmm. and target them and say, if you're in CRP, uh, you get a higher incentive for joining the public access program, or we're gonna make it available in these particular areas where we have CREP. I know in Cody's case in Ohio, you know, Scioto River CREP is a definite target of their access program. So, yeah, I can't tell you that you're always going to get to hunt a CRP farm or a field. Um, But if it's there, we have the ability, you know, if it's there, then the birds can be there. And if the birds are there, then we have the ability to go try and make it accessible. And uh, I think that's an important connection that sometimes people miss when they kind of make those broad statements about, you know, well, it should all be open. Um, that's just not going to happen. And, and if it was that way, a lot of landowners wouldn't sign up. So it's not a good idea to go down that path.
2: Right on. That's a that's a great point. Um, it is the foundation for so many access programs out there. And ultimately, it is the primary building block for the wild populations of birds that are in place across the country um the other other thing you mentioned that i think is is worth um highlighting again is the fact that you grew up on a farm and look at i'm looking at jim english too jim jim if i recall correctly jim you grew up on a dairy farm in new york right and our bethany herb our uh, director of government affairs i believe she grew up grew up on a ranch in montana and my point is there's an awful lot of our biologists that are rooted in the farm ag and ranch world and you know that it's not as you i think can't you use the words habitat in harmony right it's it's um, in harmony with agricultural production and that um, that's really the goal here and you add habitat and harmony with agriculture and harmony with water quality h2o and then you get the the, the trifecta of success there and um, it, you know that's where I wanted to pass the baton to Jim I'll let you you know you can build on the uh, growing up on a farm piece but what i what I'm curious about is all the this evolution of Um, The connection of habitat for wildlife to water quality. How has that made your job? um, How has that changed your job fighting for um, conservation programs in the Farm Bill and beyond? Grasslands Act, um, you know, uh, Recovering America's wildlife all the acronym suit, RAWA, <laughs> um, everything. What's, uh, what's water quality? It seems like it would be the silver bullet.
0: It's always been an important factor. I mean, we look at conservation, you know, projects back into the 30s with with erosion and what happened in the East, even losing our topsoil. I mean, we have areas we can't farm anymore because we lost all the topsoil you know, from that standpoint. So we learned about that. It wasn't like just the Dust Bowl, but it was water quality. You look at some of the early conservation measures that were around water for large cities because of what was happening with, with erosion and, you know, pollutants and those types of things. Then it, it's always been there. And it's certainly been there with CRP right from the start in 1985. CRP was about reducing soil erosion and improving water quality. Wildlife wasn't even that, wasn't that third leg until the 96 farm bill. Um, But one of the things that I think brings a lot of this together, and we've been saying this for years, is that if we um, expect private landowners, farmers, ranchers to implement voluntary conservation programs, we need the funding in place to do that. You know, what they're doing on these are it's benefiting all of society, you know, from these ecosystem services that Kent said. So we need to make sure that those funding sources are in play. The Farm Bill is certainly one of them. Um, you know, I'm really proud to be here in Ohio and have the Clean Ohio program that's over 20 years old. The H2 Ohio program was a concept of Governor DeWine and his staff and and the leadership there. They had to go to the legislature. It was part of the budget. He went for $200 million that first year. He got 172 and now they just reauthorized it again. So we have over $350 million in the last four years or over a four-year time period to put towards water quality type practices. And there are you know, are many other states that are doing it as well. So it does help sell the program to all of society and every member of Congress and every state because water, either quantity or quality mm-hmm. are issues. So whether we're trying to save water in the West by doing conservation practices or, you know, recharge aquifers, you know, those types of things, um, I think draws very well. And something that we always use, you know, soil, water, wildlife, I mean, we don't we can talk about carbon sequestration as well which has always been there in the case of CRP and some of the other USDA programs but it's um, becoming you know um, uh, it's kind of coming up more on the list when people are talking about it right so
2: all right as uh, as we draw to a close <clears throat> I will invite um, listeners to to make sure that uh, you know if you have questions about the connection between our mission and um, and how it impacts water quality, drop me an email, bobs at pheasantsforever.org. Um most importantly, you know that my goal for this particular episode, all those bird hunters out there who belong to this organization, I want you to be able to communicate the linkage between, yeah, you know, you're passionate about chasing that dog around and creating habitat for wild birds. But your impact is so, it reverberates across the entire planet. Clean, healthier soils, um, places to go through public lands, um, and cleaner water to fish for walleye, or just uh, to be able to enjoy um, cleaner air and watch a sunset. Everything that we do as an organization, and we can't do it without our members. Um, makes for the planet being a better place. And I know that's a lofty statement, but it's 100% true. So thanks to everybody who's a member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And if you're a listener and not yet a member, it's 35 bucks. Help us Help us create some habitat and clean up the water where you live. You'd be surprised from the Chesapeake Bay to the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, what we're doing is having an impact pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Now I'm going to go around the horn. Kent's going to get the final thought because this was originally his concept. Um, so we'll start with uh, the seasoned vet. We'll go from Jim to Cody to Ben to Kent. So Jim, kick us off here with your final closing thought.
0: So the only thing that I would ask is when you see these opportunities, we absolutely need you to engage. When we talk about the Lake Erie uh, program, the crap. That required um, the Ohio legislature to put money in the budget, and it was dead. It was dead in committee 22 years ago. And it was pheasants forever members, absolutely pheasants forever members. It was other conservation partners that helped get the push to pick that up to say it was really important. The same thing with Governor DeWine's H2Ohio program or the Clean Ohio program that started 20 years ago um, with the legislature there. We need that grassroots support. So when these things come up in in Ohio or any other state in the country, then we need you to pick up the phone and tell them how important it is for you. They need to hear from you as a constituent to to make it a a top
2: priority for them. Right on. We are an organization that uh, is very conservative in our approach with action alerts. So when we issue an action alert, it's it's critical. And we need you to drop an email, pick up a phone or Contact somebody through social media. Good point, Jim. Um, Cody, closing thought.
4: I'll start by saying thanks to Kent for for those kudos he gave me a few few minutes ago. Appreciate it. Um, when I talked about Ohio and kind of described the landscape, I, I wish I would have mentioned that Ohio is about ninety five percent privately owned land. We don't have a ton of public land in the state of Ohio, so. Um. We need habitat on, on private land. That's where that's what we need to support wildlife. So in order to do that, we have to appeal to all those landowners. And so uh, we have to appeal to a wide audience. I think uh, somebody mentioned that earlier in the podcast, talking about appealing to a wider audience. Uh, In order to do that, we need to find out what motivates them. And so I just challenge everybody to think about the, the motivating factors other than wildlife that habitat can provide and how we could deliver the mission of creating more habitat um, by you know appealing to other motivating factors besides habitat and wildlife itself and think about having a conversation about habitat without talking about wildlife at all maybe Hmm. and maybe it's only water quality or or soil quality or some other ecosystem service
2: yeah right All right, Michigan brother, looking good with the stormy Cromer. What's your closing thought, Ben? Um, I would just say, from a
1: Michigan perspective, uh,
2: water quality is is such a big deal here.
1: And Michigan's unique, being the Great Lake State, you know, surrounded on most sides by water. We're we're one of the few states where all of the water running out of the state is going to the same place. Mm. Um, And so it just kind of exacerbates the effect and the importance of this water quality stuff. So um, I'd echo what Jim and Cody said as well. Uh, When you see an action alert, please, please help us out. And, uh, Bob, I, I, from one troll to another, uh, I, I want to say thanks for helping us tell that story.
2: (laughs) Uh, I don't know how, how to take that exactly, but I'll say thanks. (laughs) All right, Kent, you brought this concept forward. Uh, did we live up to your, your hopes and dreams and expectations?
3: Absolutely. This has been fantastic. Um, and uh, i guess that's kind of how i'm i'm wrapping up my closing thought here as well is well first of all i would say uh it was one hour and 17 minute mark when jim said his thought go back and re-listen to that because it's you can't state the importance of it enough hopefully you haven't forgotten it three minutes later Uh, but go back and listen to that because that was very well stated and and super important um and the, the uh, linkage to that, is, uh, on my thought, is I probably wouldn't have a job with Pheasants Forever if it wasn't for water quality issues uh, and the opportunities that they present to create habitat. Um, you know, it, it is what makes us relevant to our, a lot of our partners um, and our funders, in this part of the country. Uh, so if I wanna work in this state or, or this side of the Mississippi, I better be thinking bigger than birds. Um, that's not to say that I'm all, not always uh, keeping the birds in mind and moving in a direction uh, and our staff are moving in a direction that's benefiting birds and wildlife. We, that's always our, our ultimate objective And we're not drifting from our mission whatsoever when we're working on um, environmental issues and water quality issues. It's just, it's the vehicle to get us there. Um, So I would say, you know, that's uh, a lot of times what makes us relevant and keeps us in the game. uh, And we just have to recognize that. And then, uh, my twofold thought there uh, is please tell our story. Thank you for helping us tell the story, Bob, but I would uh, appeal to the listeners and the members out there, um, to, you know, get outside of your, um, your, your hunter circle of friends and tell the story to the people that don't hunt, you know, tell, tell the people why they should come to your banquet, even though they don't have a hunting license in their pocket. Um, you know, there's a lot of, Need to Cody's point, a lot of need for support out there and a lot of opportunity to bring more people into the fold than just the Orange Army. And quite frankly, we're a pretty small slice of the population. Um, so we better find a way to generate that other support out there. And we have a great story to tell. It's an easy one to tell. Mm. Who doesn't need clean water? Uh, right. You know, it, it's the lifeblood of the planet. So, um, I think that's my closing thought, rambling, closing thought. Uh, hopefully it wasn't uh, too hard to piece together there, but I, I think yeah. the episode accomplished what I hoped.
2: Yeah. I think it was really well stated and underline the fact that, well, you know, to draw the connection to the importance of crap and CRP on the East, East of the Mississippi is the best argument for more acres in the farm bill overall, and it helps create acres in South Dakota, in North Dakota, in Montana, because the benefits that CRP and CREP brings to water quality across the East Coast makes CRP and CREP relevant to that senator, to those U.S. representatives. You know, we know Senator Thune in South Dakota, it's relevant to South Dakota, undoubtedly. But the fact that CRP is super relevant to water quality in the Chesapeake Bay makes it a really powerful statement when you can go fight for CRP in the farm bill from a landscape level approach. It's it's relevant in water quality in the East. Well, it's relevant water quality everywhere, but to highlight it here in the East Coast, it's the same purpose as we've talked about the quail, uh, addition of quail forever in the organization years ago. It's like the best friend for habitat in North Dakota is the quail forever chapter in Georgia because it makes habitat relevant to that senator in Georgia to go talk about habitat at a landscape level, national um, scale that, uh, that really we are trying to achieve. Um, so whether it's water quality or quail, It makes us a holistic approach as we fight for our issues. And I've I've opened the door. Go ahead, Kent.
3: Uh, uh, Real quick, I was just going to say to your point that you made earlier about the population. um, We have the population in the eastern part of the U.S., no doubt, much to my chagrin when I go deer hunting on public land in Pennsylvania. Uh, We have a lot lot of population here, but that equates to votes. And so we need to be relevant. Uh, Here And we need to tell our story and why it's important to uh, the East Coast uh, representatives.
2: Right on. Fellas, Cody Grasser, Ben Beeman, Jim Inglis, Ken Adams. Thanks for spending uh, your time telling the story of the linkage between upland birds, wildlife habitat and water quality. It's an important one and one we'll uh, we'll, we'll bring up again because uh, our members should be darn proud of the things that are being accomplished on the ground, including a brand new piece of public ground in Ohio. Congratulations, folks. Your membership helped make that happen. For Bob St. Pierre, I'm reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening.